In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Aliens communicate in and out of the body. <laughs> They're like little chatty Kathy dolls. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Did I ever tell you about this one time when I invented a time machine? By accident, anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. So the Jeffrey. So the chair. Here we are again. Yes, here we are. You know, um, some listeners from our our message board asked if, uh, well, they suggested really that we maybe do a segment where we uh, look at the UFO news and and discuss it at the beginning or the end of an episode. Uh, and that hmm. sounded good okay. to me until I realized there's there's no UFO news. Actually, well, 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 actually, there is. I mean, there's, there's, there's some out around that. You got to do the Google alerts. So you just type UFO in the Google alerts, and of course, you'll get everything from the rock band UFO hmm. <laughs> to UFO news. Well, why don't they just do it, and then they don't need us to talk about it? Doctor, doctor, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything yeah, around I, the the world of ufology that you want to talk about? Not, not, not that I can think of right off the top of my head. I would have to open my Google alerts and look at them, and I've deleted them all from my mail today. Great. Moving on. <laughs> Paratopia, please welcome our very special guest, Chris Leesk. He is a gentleman I met at the Harvard gathering that I've spoken about on various episodes. Um, he is an experiencer of some strange stuff, I'll say, and... Um, I believe he worked on free energy devices. Uh, Chris, that would be, be my Stephen Greer impression, by the way. Uh, Chris, thank you for coming on the show to talk about your wild, wacky life. Well, <laughs> thanks for inviting me. So, where do we begin? Are you an abductee? Are you an experiencer? What's uh, experiencer and not an abductee? Although. You know, my father had missing time. My cousin does, and her daughters had all kinds of experiences with abductions. But I don't—I have no memory whatsoever of abduction. So you're saying you're in denial? <laughs> That's <laughs> no, I'm not in denial. If I had the experience, I'd tell you. I just don't have the memory if, if it happened. I... Um, so what are you an experiencer of? Um, a lot of strange things. I—I I mean, uh, uh. You know, it started in high school. I started having uh, out-of-body experiences several times a week. And um, and uh, they were very scary for me because I had, you know, this is in the 60s. I'm pretty old, you know, so um, there, there, was no, there was no public knowledge about out-of-body experience. There was no public knowledge about uh, any out-of-body experience of meeting beings or anything like that. And uh, 
So I, would, I usually my autobiography experience consisted of finding myself out of my body in my bed and then struggling to get back in in sheer terror. <laughs> and I didn't know what put me out of the body. I, I still don't know why that happened, but it happened an awful lot. Would you say that uh, an out-of-body experience... Um, well, I've heard two things. One is that obviously out of the, it's out of the body. Another is that it's sort of a, a visionary state where you think you're out of your body, but you're you're sort of non-local or something. You know, you're sort of in your body, but you can see out your body. Would you say that you were outside of your body? Um, it, it was hard to tell because I was always afraid to look at my body. But uh, generally, I was. Uh, it was like you say. I, I could see. I could hear sounds in the room, although they weren't normal sounds. They were sort of um, hollow, uh, non-local sounds. I couldn't really tell where they were coming from generally. Hmm. Uh, but I could see, even though I knew my eyes were closed, I could still see the wall, I could see the bed, I could see the things in my room. And, uh, and that, that brought up one of, you know, one of the scariest things, uh, episodes was, uh, <clears throat> it always seemed to happen around 3 in the morning, and I heard this uh, somebody coming up the stairs. I was on the second floor in the back of the house. This is actually in Darien, Connecticut. If you, uh, it's right near New York City there. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, actually, this is after Darien. Let's see. This is, no, this is in Massachusetts. Yeah, after we moved, just after that. Anyway, uh, so I heard the footsteps coming up. I thought maybe it was my mother, or father, or something coming up. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it came into my room. The door opened. And it got into my bed. I felt the bed go down, and this arm came around my head, and it was all green with scales and claw had a claw instead of fingernails had claws, and uh, that was really quite scary. I mean, I had never seen, never heard of any kind of reptilian being before, and here was one in my bed. Well, wait a second. When did you? I'm, I'm confused. Did you see the being actually come in and get into the bed? No, I was facing away from it. So I was facing the wall. So I heard it come in the room. Mm-hmm. I heard. I felt the bed as it got into the bed. And then its arm came around between me and the wall, and then I could see it. Hmm. So I saw the arm from the elbow to the fingernails. And that was enough. I didn't want to see the rest of it. So, uh... Did it say anything or communicate anything? No. And then I, I got the distinct impression that it was almost like a parallel reality. I wasn't even sure whether that being was aware that I was there. Hmm. Uh, some of the thoughts that came into my mind that it may have been me in another parallel universe, but maybe not. Maybe I've also had the thought maybe it was... You know, they talk about the reptilians uh, sort of monitoring humans, and so maybe that was part of some kind of monitoring process. But it was clearly not exactly on this physical level because I struggled to get back in my body, and when I did, it wasn't there. And it certainly was not a dream state. I know that. And this is, you know, skeptics always say, oh, you were dreaming, but there's a distinct difference. In in these states of -of out-of-body, you're conscious. You make decisions. You're aware. You have memory. There's no... There's no doubt it's an awake, aware state, and uh, it's it's. Uh, you know, I don't even listen to people who say that anymore because it's, it's so such a a real experience. Mm-hmm. And 
Well, let me ask you something. Um, just in, yeah. you have an experience like that, and then you must read about reptilians and. I didn't read about reptilians till probably the 1990s. Okay, so you read eventually. You read about reptilians. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, in anything that you've read, have you seen anything? Not that appeals to you emotionally or personally, but that actually reflects any of the experiences you've had with them? Yeah, well, actually, um, that particular experience, I had a friend who grew up in Westport, Connecticut, and she told me, after I told her that experience, she told me she had the exact same experience. Uh, she saw a reptilian being, came in her room, got into bed, same, exactly the same as mine. And uh, so I thought that was curious. So that's a direct parallel to my experience. Um, I have read of other people who have had uh, encounters with reptilians. I felt no negative energy, no negative, no, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, no aggressive uh, energy coming from the being. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've read there's, there's all kinds of different reptilian races. There's not just one, so... Uh, Chris, can I, I ask? I <clears throat> huh? I'm sorry. Can I ask um, the physicality of, you know, the arm and the hand? What was that like? Are we talking about, you know, five fingers like us, fingernails, five fingers, in the same five place? fingers scales, definitely green, very fine um, scales or or bigger scales? Uh, I'd say maybe between a sixteenth of an inch and an eighth of an inch, probably mm -hmm. closer to sixteenth of an inch. Okay. And in the course, of the, the remarkable thing was the fingernails were really, uh, they were like claws. Mm, but other okay. than that, the hand was very human. Okay. And that I've read also, that, that most reptilians have claw-like fingernails. Mm -hmm. I read that, of course, much later. But Any other experiences and, with reptilians? No, that's the only one with a reptilian. Um, I had another experience. Well, how, wait, can I ask you how that ended? Yeah. When I got in my body, uh, uh, it was gone. So you you got scared. You what's the process of getting back into your body? What what happened? Uh, struggling to try and, and and enter my body and make the muscles move. So your awareness is outside your body. Yeah. Um, you can see your room. I can see the room. And do you have to concentrate on something to get back in your body? I concentrate on my body. Okay. Um, and then that pulls you back into normal. Yeah, it eventually, it pulls me back. Sometimes it takes a while, but. And do you see, like, when you go into your body, do you see the inside, the interior of your body, or is it just sort of boom? There you are, back. In no, your body? boom! I'm there, and then my eyes open, and I'm generally looking at the same part of the room, you know. But. Hmm. Uh, but I had a you know a series of experiences. I, you know, it's one of the strangest ones was. I looked out the window, and I woke up in the middle of the night, looked out the window, and there was this rectangular shape. It looked like a maybe 18 inches long, maybe 3 inches wide, almost like a 2 by 4 kind of thing, but it was floating outside the window. There was enough light outside I could see it. And uh, so I said, okay, this is, this is I, was, I was not out of my body. This is in my body experience. So I decided I'm going to do a scientific analysis of this thing. I'm going to, you know, I, I uh, turn on the lights. Uh, I could still see it outside the window. I, was, I look for reflection. Is this a reflection? No. I, I just tried every possible way to, to rule out anything, but it was still floating outside my window. And uh, I ended up sleeping in the bathtub that night because I, you know, I was so freaked out that something was 
monitoring me on the outside of my window. And uh, in the morning I went and it was it was gone. It wasn't there. Any communication with that? No, none whatsoever. I don't even know what it was. Was it hard-edged, Chris, the, the edges of it? Were they solid edges on it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> but not. They're kind of rounded. Okay. Um, but it was a pretty well-defined shape. It wasn't yeah, fuzzy it was or out shape. shape. It was not giving off any light, but yet I could see it. So, okay. Uh, that, this is the neat, one of the neatest experiences I had. Was, okay, I woke up in the night totally, you know, in my body, totally awake. And uh, my bed at that time, my bed moved around at various times. This time was uh, away from the window, so I had to, this desire to go see, look out the window. It was a full moon night, and uh, the backyard went out towards a pine forest, which went on for several miles. There was nothing in back of us. And uh, so I, the window was closed. I looked out the window. I was on the second floor, and there was nothing below me for two floors until you hit the ground. There was no ledges, no nothing. And this large white object just took off from just below the window. As soon as I looked out the window, it took off. It looked like a bird. In other words, it had a, like a wingspan. It was white. I could see the moonlight reflecting off it. But, you know, it didn't have the detail of a bird. It didn't have a, a tail like a bird. And it didn't flap its wings. And it just took off, crossed the yard, went off into the woods among the trees until I couldn't see it anymore. So it probably went about 300 feet, didn't flap its wings, didn't descend at all, and then just disappeared. I have no idea what that was. Another, some kind of monitoring something or other. Jeff, didn't you see something like that at your old condo? <clears throat> well, I saw a an object that appeared to... <sighs> I don't know, it was hovering. It was a, it was a ball with... A ball? Uh, with essentially what looked like appendages on it that were thin and I guess rectangular to a certain point, but they were almost like a uh, um, narrower towards the body of this ball. Uh And it was, it was hovering, but it was bobbing up and down rather, I don't know, artificially. And it was Uh flapping these, (laughs) it was flapping these, these uh, appendages. Like I'm, I'm flying, I'm a bird. Really? Like, you're you're not a bird. I don't know what the hell you are. And I bolted inside the house, but I mean, it was it was so close I could have put my hands on it. Yeah. Uh, well, this was literally was, when I first saw it, it was probably two feet in front of me. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly about about the you know it was just just shy over the railing of the balcony. Right. And and it, it just I don't know it put me in mind of uh, um, yeah they're dumb they'll think it's a bird. <laughs> like no, that's a new bird. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah, well, that's what exactly what I thought. I said, well, it looks like a bird, but birds are supposed to flap their wings and they're, and they're supposed to sit on something. There's nothing to sit on under the windows. Right. So even at the time, I said, well, it's got to be hovering, but birds can't hover. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I was going through at that time. That was another night I spent the night in the bathroom. I with a light on. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I spent quite a few in the bathroom. <laughs> Me too, for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, right. Nobody needs to hear that. Oh, sorry. Um, so is it is it a coincidence, then, uh, that you ended up working on free energy? Um, I don't know if it's a coincidence. I, I just spontaneously, around 1985, I started really getting the desire to work on free energy. I was convinced it existed. And uh, there was nothing I read that said it existed. I just 
felt it did, and I don't know why. Um, I guess I, I, I became convinced that the universe is structured such that it's psychically hmm, generated. In other words, if you accept the existence of the psychic, then the physical must be a result of the psychic, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And if you accept that, then literally you're only limited by what you can think. So I thought, well, if I can think that there's a, a free source of energy, there must be one. That's literally the reasoning I went through. What is your actual, what is your profession? What is your, are, Mechanical engineer. Mechanical engineer. Yeah, uh, and electrical, a little bit electrical, mostly mechanical. And how did you uh, end up getting hooked up with, with John Mack or, or that group? Well, um, that was a long story. I mean, when I got into uh, alternate energy, I went through a whole series of people. I... I uh, I was I was convinced that uh, I started hearing around 1989. I started hearing about um, abductees and things like you know people like that, uh, experiences like that. And so I, I got in touch with uh, Joe Nyman, um, who was a uh, an abductee researcher in Massachusetts. He used to do uh, hypnosis and uh, etc. And I asked him if if he knew of any of his, you know, the people had come to see him who had done hypnosis on, whether they had had any technology. Um, so he invited me to sit down on one of his, uh, a woman he was in the process of hypnotizing and hearing her story, and I sat in on a bunch, a whole bunch of sessions, and then uh, he got a, a call from Bud Hopkins, and Bud Hopkins told him that there was uh, a friend of his, a person uh, who had come to see him, who did was given technology, and he lived on Cape Cod. So Joe gave me the number. I called him up, and this is really interesting. This is, uh, let's see, this is February of 1989. When you say was given technology, you mean by visitors? Or ET, by ET, uh, okay. ETs. And uh, so I, I contacted him, and we set up a meeting for the first week of April down on Cape Cod. I... Um, in the meantime, I had two experiences with an ET. Um, the first one was very interesting. He, all of a sudden, I was in, uh, sitting in a chair a, 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 on the other side of a, a room in an, obviously an old New England farmhouse with a window on the left, snow on the ground. And this guy was in a plaid flannel shirt, blue jeans, <laughs> but he was obviously not human. Uh, I have not yet seen a picture of anybody's experience anywhere that looks like this guy. Uh, he had a big head, um, no hair. He had eyes like ours, blue, uh, blue iris, white background, but they were much bigger than our eyes. Um, very small nose, very small mouth. He took, spoke telepathically, very small ears. And I knew he was quite old. I mean, he wasn't a young guy because I could see wrinkles around his, in the corners of his eyes and the corners of his mouth. I could see little wrinkles. So I knew he was not young. And I immediately felt, you know, the the thought came in mind, uh, he's my elder brother. That's like the thought. And as soon as I became aware of him sitting there looking at me, I got the thought from him, oh no, he's, he's awake. And immediately this image was projected in my mind of this machine. 
And that was the end of the experience. And I, I got the distinct feeling after I came out of that experience that this was, the experience was actually much longer and I was only allowed a brief flash of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out when, where were you when, when this, this happened? I, this is, a, again, a, a vivid dream. I was in a dream state, but I was awake. I was conscious. I was, it was all in color. You know, it was real. So would you say it was a, a lucid dream, or would you say it was lucid a lucid dream? Yeah, a lucid dream. Okay, so you have a lucid dream, and, and yeah. within the dream, the guy says, oh, you're awake. Yeah, and then he projects an image into my mind of this machine. Of the machine. So I then went down the next month. Uh, I can't remember it was the end of March or beginning of April, 89. And I went down to see this guy I met. And he takes me down in the base in his uh, garage where he was building this machine. Yeah, and this it was is the machine. Did Bud Hawkins introduce you to? Yes. Okay. And it was the machine that I said this ET had put in my mind. So he was building the machine that, that was in your mind? Yeah. Huh. Okay. And this. So. All right, so when he said uh, he he when Bud Hopkins said he had technology, he meant he had sort of blueprints that he was maybe given or downloaded with, but not actually. Yeah, downloaded with. I think he was fall. He he had had experiences, abduction experiences. This guy, uh, I'll just say his name was Paul. He uh, he and his whole family were abducted by a large UFO in Southern New Jersey around uh, nineteen. Hmm, around 86 maybe and uh so he had quite a uh quite experience he, you know he remembers um he remembers being taken out of the car and going up to the ship and then then was a regression from from bud hopkins he was able to remember more of it so <clears throat> when you go in there and you see this machine what, what's your reaction are you like Holy my shit. reaction was pretty you know wow <laughs> first it validated what this et had given me in the in the Image. Do you remember what the ET was wearing? Well, yeah, he, he uh, uh, like I said, a red plaid shirt and blue oh, jeans. Sorry. That's right, you did say that. But uh, that that was probably a screen, you know, like a, a projected image. You know, I, I don't know if it was really physical. Oh. So but what, what does the machine real. look like, and what does it do? Uh, it's a counter-rotating disc with uh, uh, electromagnets on the top and bottom disc space on. Uh, Vertically off the disc or around the uh, periphery. So the uh, so essentially when they counter rotate, the the electromagnetic fields make and break. And the this is another interesting thing. The day the day I got there, Paul receives a a letter from somebody he's never met. I'll just call Basil. <laughs> Basil writes a letter and said. Hi, I'm Basil. Da-da. I've I've been having experiences for a very long time with a certain group of ETs, and uh, uh, they're giving me a lot of technology. And they told me to contact you, uh, and that you're you're supposed to build our technology. And uh, <laughs> turns out that this guy Basil had been given Paul's name, but not his address, and he was told to send him a letter. And he didn't know what to do, so he called up. But he got in touch with Bud Hopkins and asked if he knew anybody was Paul's name. And Bud he said, "Yeah." And Bud gave him the address, so he wrote the letter to Paul. <clears throat> and he uh, got there the day I got there. So we're reading this letter and I started talking about technology. So that was a really interesting side. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, is the technology itself um, interesting? 
or yeah. anything? I mean, is it breakthrough? The whole technology, it... so they, what the ETs through Basil explained was that the field you get, you produce to create anti-gravity. There's three things that produce with this field, anti-gravity, time-space travel, and uh, faster than light travel. So you can actually use it for, for any of those purposes, and it's they call it a plasma field, but they also were very implicit that it was not an ionized field like we call a plasma field. They, they said there's the, the protons, neutrons, and electrons are made up of very small particles, smaller than quarks. And uh, it was interesting. They said the quarks are intermediate particles of no consequence. I remember them saying that. They wrote a whole series of letters through Basil. Uh, you know, hundreds of letters, actually. <laughs> so was this thing ever successfully created? Well, we, we built this this machine. Uh, he, well, Paul built it, and, and, and I worked on it. And uh, three separate times, uh, it actually started self-rotating. Um, one of the times it was caught on, uh, two times it was caught on videotape. So we have the videotapes of it. And uh, Paul, uh, the first time, which was not on videotape, and I was that was before I got there, um, it started self-rotating faster and faster. Paul pulled out the plug to the motors that rotate the disc, uh, but it still kept accelerating. And it accelerated so much that the magnet, the electromagnets just uh, flew off the disc and broke. And then it stopped. Um, the second time, which was videotaped, uh, he was quick when it started. When it started doing that, it was he was quick to pull out the plug before pull out the plug of the electromagnets and the motors so that it wouldn't self-destruct. But his problem was he wasn't able to get it to d duplicate that effect again. So I worked with him for about three years, and we, we really tried everything, trying to get it to do it. We got a lot of very strange effects. We uh, videotaped ball lightning, uh, very strange arcs, uh, light, light bending, um, very strange effects, but we couldn't get it to uh, auto-rotate. And um, are you still working on it? or I'm working on a different design right now. It's a totally, not totally, it's, it's actually a variation of what the ETs gave through Basil. Uh, it's not like anything I've read anywhere else, and uh, I've not read this theory, like I was talking about the small, these very small particles. Anyway, the, the, the te technique is to release these very small particles into a field, and then you manipulate the field to get different effects. Uh, these, these particles literally create an inertial field by their very presence. <clears throat> so, and the, and the ETs explained how the ships work, how the um, you know, the interaction of this field that's created around the ship, that's why the ships generally have smooth skin so that they can they can uh, balance the field. And uh, when it hits the atmosphere, it ionizes the gases, and that's what you see the glow from. It's well, not the ship would itself. Would the ship going. itself look as though it's uh, staticky or beating with gnats? Gnats? Yeah. Would it look staticky? Uh, oh, you're definitely static, and that's what this field does is create static electricity. Huh. Um, it, it, it creates all kinds of electrical effects. Um, uh, it creates very strong magnetic effects, uh, very strong electrostatic effects. Uh, it ionizes anything that touches it, you know, like gases. Do you find it odd that, that aliens would bother to, to do all of this rigmarole to have, to have you, not got, you guys not be able to invent it? Um. 
We didn't think it was strange because we're not that smart. <laughs> we needed all the help we could get. <laughs> and, uh, but we haven't succeeded yet. And, uh, Paul has since moved to Hawaii, so I've stopped working with him, but I think he's still working on something by himself. Well, let me ask you one more thing, and then I'll turn it over to to Jeff here. Um, Just to tell the story of the time-traveling answering machine message. (laughs) Oh, the time-traveling answering machine. So during this period, I was working with Paul. Um, You know, I was also having my own business up here. I work out in my barn, and my office is there. I started getting these phone calls, always at lunchtime, and it would be, all I would hear was somebody playing uh, doo-wop music, which is my, you know, one of my favorites. Um, sorry if nobody likes doo-wop, but I really do, anyway. <laughs> I love doo-wop. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Although I had a good voice. <laughs> so. <laughs> anyway, so they would play doo-wop music on the, on the phone, and then they would hang up. Never, no voice, no nothing. And this happened numerous times, and I was getting a little bit perturbed because I, I didn't know what was going on. And then, every, you know, every once in a while, probably once or two weekends a month, I would go down and work with Paul. So one day, somebody calls up, and I don't hear anything. And then I hear Paul's voice, and Paul's saying, hello, 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 and then hangs up. And it's exactly at noontime. Now, you got to follow the time here to understand or perceive what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then I hear the doo-wop music, <laughs> and, then, and then it stops. Um, so I'm thinking about that. I ate my lunch. And then at 1 o'clock, I call up Paul, and I say, hey, Paul, did, you, did anybody call and nobody answer? And he said, yeah. I said, somebody called, and there was nobody there. I said, hello, hello, hello. And, hung up because there was nobody there. And I said, well, what time was that? And he said, he said, it was at 1230. I said, you're sure 1230? And he says, yeah. He says, when I picked up the phone, it was in, you know, in the kitchen, has a clock there. And I said, I looked right at the clock. It was 1230 exactly. And uh, there's nobody there, so I hung up. So suddenly, I suddenly realized that I had gotten the phone call with his recording before he had actually gotten the call. Was it and, his recording or was it him... Speaking. Was, what I heard was him speaking. Like a half hour prior to him receiving Actually, a call from you. Well, see, I got I called him at 1. I got the original call at 12, and he got the call at 12.30. Right, so you so, got a call, and it was him saying, hello, 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 but at, he yeah. perceived oh, it the, as at 12.30, you called him, and he was saying, hello, hello, hello. I called him at 1, but I got the call right. at noon, and uh, of, uh, which was him answering the phone at twelve thirty half right. an hour later. That is weird. And, and what did you make of that? What I don't know. It was clear. Clearly, somebody was monitoring, is, is following Paul and I's work. I don't know who. And the strange thing is, last summer I got another call to do up music. I don't know who. When and was the last this is time? Many years later, huh? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Was it? When was the last time that you had heard The last time was last summer, yeah. Was it before or after the Harvard thing? Uh, it was before. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wondering if you should be worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, maybe it's the government, but I don't think... I just don't think they'd go out of their way to do that kind of stuff. So maybe. I mean, it wasn't really harassing. Mm. 
it was it was certainly letting me know that they're aware whoever it is huh. and whoever it is also seem to have the ability to manipulate time well, or GTs are known to do but I don't I, know can I ask this I mean sure. if you um, to the best of your recollection about the time that you were getting these calls uh, well yeah. first of all could you recognize the tune <laughs> I thought about that I said oh, I, I wish I could remember the tunes but now I can't remember the tunes no even last summer I can't it, remember what was played so, so when you directly heard it, you couldn't make out exactly what the tune was. I can't remember what the tune was. Okay, but I knew it was doo-wop music. Okay, uh, I would. Yeah, thinking back, none of the calls, including one last summer, can I say I know which record they were playing, which song? Okay, familiar at all past being doo-wop. Excuse me. It was it familiar at all to you? Being, I mean, a doo-wop aside, the form of music aside, was it at all familiar to you in any sense of thought? No. Okay. And that's, uh, you know, now that you've mentioned it, I never thought of that before, but no, there's, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that means. But. Now, here's, here's the other question is, during the time that the calls were happening, and, and, and in particular, the call that you received at 1230, yeah. uh, or 12 o'clock, rather, or whatever yeah, it was, the discrepancy in the time. Yeah. Were you guys actively, or was Paul actively testing this this experimental machine he had built? Uh, he, yeah, I think he was at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> Could I suggest to you then that it worked? It's possible. <laughs> Without, yeah, it's possible. I mean, that's I the first know. thing that comes to mind to me yeah. is that it worked. It did something. Um, have. and I, I could probably, you know, I could probably even postulate somewhere in here that the doo-wop music was yeah. you, <laughs> was your music, was something you had on, uh, at some point during the day or night. Um, yeah. and that's what you were hearing. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I hear that, that you, uh, you mentioned with this machine that there were some odd time, uh, so, so, some very odd effects to what it was doing. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I have to wonder what effects might you not have readily noticed, and and, and is this some kind of I don't know um, ripple effect of of starting the machine, letting it run to the point of breaking? You know, could it have worked? <laughs> yeah, that I that I don't know, and that's certainly something to think about. You know, there's <coughs> I've learned not to to close out any ideas. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, and I also think that uh, if, well, I have to wonder if we're talking about, I mean, we, we talk about non-locality around here a lot, and I have to wonder if a machine like that, that is obtained from some kind of unknown source, yeah, you have to wonder, it may does be, it... Like you, you might be right, it might be having some effect that we're not aware of. Well, effect not only environmentally i would say but effects on the two of you because exactly. you were the two involved with it so did it have an effect in some kind of altered state of consciousness between the two of you that's possible which manifested in you know a local local way yeah that's uh, possible but uh well the one the, the thing i i uh i caught very early on when you were talking about your experiences is that 3 a.m. seems to hold a good uh, a, a, a good portion of 
your your experiential time in, yeah. in, in the sense of the time. Yeah. Uh, I have to ask this before going further with that part is was was Paul an engineer as well? No, he was an environmental uh, scientist. He okay. um, he was on the original uh, Hudson River boat with uh, Pete Seeger. Okay, he, you know what do they call it? Uh, pollution raiders or whatever they called the uh, group. Okay, there. and and what about uh, what about Basil? Did he? He was uh, he he never graduated from high school. Okay. He worked at uh, an assembly plant assembling electronic stuff. Hmm. He had. Uh, if you talk to him, you'd be amazed at his, his his lack of education. Yet what he experienced on the on the ships that he was taken on. And okay, just um, amazing I mean, stories. But those are the kind of things that kind of leapt out at me a little bit with with the three a.m. in particular. Yeah, um, was something that we've talked about a lot on this show, which is a chemical called DMT. That uh, is produced in the pineal gland of, of the brain, and uh-huh. uh, and also is a, um, I guess you call it a manufactured drug by nature. In fact, it exists in most places in nature, um, and that our own bodies actually make it. And one of the things that that people experience when they when they ingest DMT in one form or another is uh, beings, um, and this is not. The, the type of thing that only some people, you know, uh, r- relate this, but quite a few people relate these beings who then, I don't know, we, we had Graham Hancock was another one of our guests, and he related how that there is this overwhelming inspiration uh, that comes forth out of these experiences with these beings encountered in a DMT altered state of consciousness. Uh-huh. And I, I find it really interesting that you had this experience where you were shown a machine uh, or or, or given some kind of creative spark into this machine. Someone else is actually building that, that same machine. Right. And then you've got a a separate guy that comes in on the same kind of uh, wave line and says, Hey, I'm supposed to contact you about this thing. Here's more. I I definitely see this inspirational type of of thing. When, when you had this lucid dream uh, in that state, uh, did you come out of that saying you were just like a fire was lit under your ass, like you've got to do something with this? Well, yeah. Well, I, I, I had been looking for for a direction for technology, and this was uh, said here. Here's the direction. Is basically what the dream said. Right. Here, go this. Go in this direction. Now, and, and but I want to say something here that uh, you, you can say that okay, well maybe that's my own mind's creation because of the pineal gland secretion at certain time of the night but i also and this is that uh, we talk a lot at, at jenny you know the john mack institute we the ets themselves i think the probably the majority of the ones that visit from what i've read experiences from the other people in the group they communicate on this psychic level um let me give you an example one of the things that came through basil and i've heard it from other another source also that when you accelerate a ship to beyond the speed of light, it ceases to be totally physical. You enter what's called a psychic plane. The ship is held together by idea. Um, from that point, you're out of the timeline, out of the physical universe, and you can enter the physical universe at any point in that timeline. But also it means that you're conscious on a psychic level. 
most humans are not conscious on this psychic level, and I'm essentially postulating that psychic level is very real. <clears throat> Unfortunately, most people on this planet are just conscious on a very physical level, so it's only on our waking sure. state. But eventually, we will learn how to communicate on the psychic level. Uh, it's also called the astral plane, I guess you might call mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, I think the ETs communicate on this level, so and they communicate. They can communicate non-locally on this level. They don't have to have a ship in your backyard to communicate with you. And if they do communicate with you psychically, um, it's not uh, unreal. I mean, you are perceiving their conscious existence, and they are separate beings. It's not an imagination. Mm -hmm. um, what makes it appear uh, not real is because we're not used to psychic reality. Uh, we're not experiencing that. And another aspect of this is the three to four hour in the morning period is also called the hour of the wolf. Mm -hmm. The hour of the wolf is, is is when a lot of these things happen, and, and the reason is it's at that point when the, the the electromagnetic effects of the sun are at their lowest point, and uh, it sort of frees the mind uh, to experience more subtle effects. Hmm. And so your mind is actually more open to the psychic at that, that time that That's than interesting. other times. Yeah. I've never heard that. I mean, the one thing that I have heard is that, uh, 3 a.m. is, is the highest levels in the body of DMT. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and because of the sun. You know, right. Exactly. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and just to clarify to you, when I say, uh, you know, the talk about the pineal gland and DMT yeah. and chemicals like that, yeah. um, I, believe me, I, I by no means imply that, uh, uh, that, that these things have a, uh, well, I hate to use the word real, but that they're not real. I think uh -huh. that, uh, I think that a great many people, including Terrence McKenna, uh, you know, Graham Hancock and, and several others, Dr. Rick Strassman has made a pretty good case to say that, you know, when these chemicals are ingested or if these chemicals enter the brain naturally, that we're actually going into an altered state of consciousness that, actually allows us to see and experience things that are all around us all the time. All the time, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and I think that that, you know, <clears throat> that's almost more uncomfortable. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of, of the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm a fan of the more uncomfortable one, which is that they are, um, uh, are around us all the time and, and that the notion of, uh, you know, space, planet, the, the reality that we're living in, uh, mm -hmm. almost being like a sleep state and and that uh you know being in the presence of these beings is more real than real if that makes any uh -huh. sense i mean have you had that kind of feeling in your own experiences that that, that any contact with these um with, with these beings seems more real to you than than real is i mean well, yeah. that's uh, sometimes it, it seems more real in these vivid experiences than when i wake up Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's that's a, a, a really interesting point. I mean, yeah. Um, do well. I'll put it to you this way: Have have you passed what you've told us about? Have you had frequent UFO sightings in daylight hours or nighttime? Uh, well, hours? I had I had the experience. I think I told Jeremy this one that when we went out to dinner. Remember the the woman? Do you remember that experience I told you? Um, not sure yet. <laughs> okay. This happened in November, just this past November. Uh, again, it was a vivid dream. 
it happened again in the middle of the night. I don't know what the time was. Mm-hmm. And in the dream, I was standing in my living room, looking outside, and it was stars out, you know. And I looked up over the trees in the front yard, and there was this ship just hovering over the trees there. And uh, it was a white ship, it was small, maybe 15 feet diameter, maybe. And it had a glass see-through dome on the top. And I could see, faintly see a being in the dome. And I immediately, psychically, I said, I felt no psychic uh, fear or, or any kind of uh, projection from the being. So I felt very calm uh, versus other some other <laughs> similar experiences were very powerful and very scary. But this one <clears throat> was very calm. And uh, um, so I projected a thought. I said, well... You know, you're you're there. If if you want to talk to me, you're you're welcome to talk to me. And immediately, I floated up through the ceiling, out the wall, and then there was I was in this gray space. That's all I can say. It was this gray space, and there was a woman there. All I could see was from her top of her shoulders up. I could see her hair in great details, like wispy platinum, or actually not even platinum blonde. It was just white. Mm maybe three inches long and very thin, but I couldn't see her face. Her face was all blurry. And it was amazing. You know, I, I, even as this was happening, I was saying, well, she's obviously blocking out her face, so I can't see it. Mm-hmm. But I could see the, the hair, you know, around. And she said, may I? And I also knew it was a woman just by the vibration. There was no, no other reason other than it was a vibration. Okay. And uh, she said, may I ask you some questions? And I said, sure. And she proceeded to ask eight or ten questions, um, none of which I can remember now. I, I remembered some of them in the morning when I woke up, but uh, I can't remember any of them now. But there were, I remember thinking, well, these are pretty simple questions. She should know the answer to these. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then that was the end of the dream. And two, a couple of days later, my daughter, who lives in an apartment over our garage, she was she told me that, she said, uh, I had a really strange experience the other night. It was the same night that I had this experience. And I said, what? She said, well, I couldn't sleep, so I was, I, was, I opened the window. I was just looking out the window. Uh, you know, she smoked, so she was smoking a cigarette looking out the window. And she said, out over the trees, there was two green lights hovering over the trees. Mm. And I said, well, she said, I, I, first I thought, well, maybe they're planes. But she said they didn't move, and they didn't move for 20 minutes. They just sat there. Mm-hmm. And then they just blinked out. Mm. And she said, I almost called you, but it was one thirty in yeah, that's right, one thirty in the morning and you were probably asleep, so anyway, and then I and then Jeremy, you showed me your picture of a uh, green light you saw. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so what Jeff saw as well. We were, we were Yeah, so this is a, a vivid dream, but yet it had a physical reality that my daughter saw. Right. That was verified by her. Yeah. Right. Are most of your experiences in that kind of altered state? Yes. Place? Okay. They're all in that altered state. Well, okay. except for the, like, you know, I saw that white thing, you know, the the, the, the white bird-like thing float across the yard, and that was right. totally awake, and also the, that rectangular thing floating out my window. Do you, um, and this is uh, it may seem like a complete aside as a question, but do you, more often than not, do, I don't know, perceive things in normal waking hours around your house that seem, I don't know, to be 
more or less on the edge of your perception, maybe oh, all the time. things I'm, flitting. I'm only seeing flashes of light. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm totally awake. I mean, I just, I saw yeah. one the other day. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> like, here's the one that happened a couple months ago. I was in my shop, uh, just, I don't know what I was doing. I was looking off towards the wall, and all of a sudden this, this light just flashed up. Not only did it flash up near the ceiling, but then it moved over to the corner of the room and disappeared. Mm. And I said, "What the heck was that?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I, I just saw a flash the other the other day. Just moved and shot across the room. I don't know what they are though. You know, I, I don't ever feel any communication with them. Right. I feel that they are conscious something or other. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever experienced- once in my shop? Once in my shop. This is about a year ago. I was working late on a project. It was around 11:30 at night, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I immediately turned around. There was nobody there, right. but it was a definite tap on my shoulder. It was physical. It was very real. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was anything of the, I don't know what people outside of all this would deem like a ghost type experience or, um, uh, yeah. like a like a like a polter, poltergeist type of experience or anything like that. I mean, it, yeah. Well, it, twice I've twice I've come into the house and I walk into the to the den and the and the CD player turns on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> all by itself I, I don't know what that is do you find that if you are paying more attention to all of this stuff that you seem to see more things or that more things seem i mean and seem to present themselves in a way that you really can't deny i don't mean to 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 imply that you know you're you're yeah. you're like the dog with his ears perked up listening for the bump in the night and then of course you're going to hear something um, yeah. do, do you find that, that when you pay more attention that something undeniable seems to happen in one way or another? Well, seems yeah, to but I, on, the other hand, I have to, on the other hand, I have to say that I'm generally aware, keep my eyes open all the time now. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're always peaked, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For instance, uh, there was something that happened just about a year ago. Um, I think you met Dennis at the uh, meeting in Cambridge, Jeremy, and yeah. I... So he he was up visiting. We work on alternate energy together. So it was in the dark, and we decided to just go up to the. I'm on an overlook up on a hill, and we can see Boston. We're about 55 miles from Boston, but the hill's at 1,100 feet elevation, and it's a big field, and it's you can see the uh, panorama of the sky. So we said, "Oh, we're standing out there looking at the sky." And said, "Well, if there's any ETs up there, say hello to us." And all of a sudden, a light flashed directly overhead. Just way up high, there's a, there's a flash of light, and then uh, moved. Uh, you know, at arm's length, it moved about six inches. Another flashlight, then it moved in another direction. Another flashlight. It happened about seven times in random locations in the sky. That was very real. Um, uh, another time, Dennis was there. We had been working on alternate energy, and he was just leaving. I looked out the back window, and there was a green light hovering in the sky. I looked at it, and it just blinked out. That was another green light experience. And if you don't mind me asking, and I know this seems like another odd-ass question, but i got to ask it. Um, what is your, I don't know, ancestral nationality? Uh, Scotch-Irish. Yeah, of course you are. Leesk <laughs> <laughs> so, is a Orkney Island name. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. I, I guess I, I kind of we we sort of skipped over how you got involved with John Mack, and I 
Yeah, I did not know John Mack. I got involved after, and it was through Dennis, who did know John Mack, and Dennis started working with me on the alternate energy, and then he invited me to one of the meetings, and that's how I got involved with it. Are there any other sort of standout experiences where there was a communication involved? Yeah, there was. Um, around 1995, for about a year, I started having, or two years, I started having these periodic experiences, vivid dreams again, where I'd uh, either from my bedroom, I'd look out the window and there'd be a ship there, or I'd be outside in the yard at night and a ship would come over, the, over and I would always feel the psychic presence of the beings. Very, very powerful. Um, literally like they could grab, I felt like my mind was literally held in a vice. Uh, I don't know, Jer- I know you've had experience with Jeremy, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but... Um, well, Jeff talks about, and I, I think I know what he's talking about when he talks about um, a feeling of proximity. Where you, I, I don't know, I've gotten that feeling of just, yeah, either being watched and or dread. <laughs> yeah, this Dude. is dread, but this is also control. I, I knew that there was nothing, nowhere I could hide, nowhere I could go. Um, they knew I was there. They controlled my mind, but not malevolently. Simply, powerfully. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just the yeah, the feeling. It's of just the, being the outright psychic psychic power of their minds is is so scary, right? Because it's nothing we experience. Um, I have never, you know, you don't meet somebody on the street who can suddenly grab hold of your mind like that. When you say that you saw a ship, did you see a light, or did you actually see a craft in the sky? Craft. What, what did it craft. look like? Round, generally. Um, like the one I most recently saw, this is just about a little over a year ago. It was um, hovering over the trees. It looked, you know, it looked ex- very much like the Gulf Breeze type ships. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it had a red, reddish, uh, orangey red band of light around the middle as it hovered over the trees. Hmm. And did it communicate anything to you? Did it? Well, that this time I was, I felt a lot of fear. I was, you know. I, for some reason, sometimes I get really afraid when I feel that powerful grab on my mind. And I got the distinct thought from them. They said, he's too afraid, we have to leave. And then the ship started glowing white, and it shot off at a high speed. Hmm. And do you talk to your family about this stuff? Oh, yeah. My wife had a lot of experiences, too. What What are her experiences? Well, her, her first one, she was with a a group of uh, living in a kind of sort of a hippie house up in Vermont. And uh, they're all up around 11 at night, and they looked outside and out in the back field. There was no houses, no roads, no nothing. And around 11 at night, this uh, kind of a dual light just descended out of the sky into the field. And then they're kind of looking at it and saying, well, what's that? And then one by one, everybody fell asleep except my wife, she was the last one, and then there was this light just out in the field, and then she fell asleep. And then, uh, let's see, there was one time, uh, she had numerous times when she would tell me in the morning, she said, did you see the lights coming in through the window last night? I said, no, and she said, yeah, I woke up, and there was was bright light coming in through our window, it was lighting up the whole room, and I tried to wake you up, but you wouldn't wake up, and that happened a whole bunch of times. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have any memory of what happened. Hmm. And you said your dad also had missing time? Yeah, he was 
This happened on 1965. He was coming back from New York City. He used to go down there in business a lot, and he, he had the time calculated. He knew exactly how many minutes it would take, you know, hours, hours and minutes to come home. And he said uh, he was coming on Route 495 north, and uh, there was nobody on the road. This is when 495 had just opened. It was pre-new road. And he saw this uh, a dual light <clears throat> following behind him in the car. And it kept his distance, and he was always speeding, so he thought it was a cop. So he, he said, well, I'm going to pull over. You know, I'm going to pull over just before the next exit and uh, just see who it is. And, uh, oh, just before he pulled over, a beam of light came out of whatever it was, lit up his whole car, was bright with light, and then it went back. The next thing he knew, there was just a light following him. And then he pulled over, and it never came by it just kind of disappeared. And then when he got home, uh, he was he got home an hour and a half late. And he, he, I remember talking in breath. He said, I don't know what happened at the time. I I should have been here at midnight, but I didn't get home until one thirty. Very strange. I just remember him saying that. Huh. Hmm. <clears throat> um, I want to just get back to the free energy stuff for one sec. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that you're um, on the verge of a breakthrough, do you think that in your lifetime you will have created whatever it is that they showed you? If I had enough time. <laughs> you know, the problem is I have to work to stay alive. And then, you know, and then with a family, it's, it's, you just, all your time gets eaten up. I'd say confidence wise in the technology, absolutely. Time wise, I don't know. Hmm. So do you think that? That what you've demonstrated, I mean, if, if you were to put the schematic out there just for general science sake, uh, do you think it would get scoffed at, or do you think that someone would take up the mantle and say, this is, my God, Eureka, this is genius? Um, I would like to, I would put the theory out. I wouldn't put the design out. In fact, I mean, Basil's a source of the current machine, one of the sources. I have two sources for the information. The other source is just psychically derived, that's all I'll say, and the design is, I can't release it. But I can release it, I can talk about the technology. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the theory behind it, um, but I will not put out the design, no. What about the videotape of it actually working? Uh, well, no, I'm talking about the current machine. Paul's machine, videotape, yeah, I can put that out. I'm, in fact, I'm, I have to convert it, it's not a tape, I have to convert it to a CD, mm-hmm. a DVD, excuse me, and then... Uh, um, then I could send you a copy when I when I get around to doing that'd that. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And then uh, could we put it on YouTube or something along those lines? Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, I, the reason is because I don't have Paul's permission to put it on. Right. Oh, okay. And, um, uh, so let me just ask you this then, too. I mean, this is sort of another question we've been struggling with is, does it matter where they're from? Uh, if If these are beings that indeed can enter some sort of psychic realm or field of what yep. knowledge something along those lines yep. it's a field of awareness field of awareness and then they think their way to point b from point a then does it matter to that society anymore where they're from i mean if you're, no. you're, they're non-local right they're not local and i would say it doesn't matter and that, and that's what we will become when we break through that technology exactly this is all i've been trying to get at jeff <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> I still yeah. want to know. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> I, will tell, I did get one very strong message once. Uh, this is, you know, it was one of those uh, mind-grabbing times. Um, I was out in the field in this vivid dream, 
The ship comes right over my head. I feel the psychic grabbing on my mind. But this time, for some reason, I simply wasn't afraid at all. And they downloaded a whole package of information into my mind. And they said, uh, I said, I, you know, I was kind of perturbed that they kept bugging me, you know, uh, you know, at night. And I'd say, what, you know, what are you doing? What is, what is my duty here? What am I supposed to be doing in relation to what they're doing? And they said, your duty is to rid your society of isms. And then what they downloaded in my mind all of a sudden unrolled, and it was this long list of isms. And the top ism was capitalism, but then all the others, you know, sexism, nationalism, racism, et cetera, et cetera. There was a list of a long Followed list. Followed by the here. words, no pressure. <laughs> you don't have to do it for a long time. You know, don't worry about it. And then I said, well, what's your, if this is my duty, what's your duty? And they said, our duty is to change the psychic vibration of the planet. Hmm. Any oh, time frame for that? <laughs> oh, and they also said, uh, I looked at the top of listing capitalism. They said, capitalism is destroying your planet. Yeah. Well, you must get rid yeah. of it. That was a message, a very strong, direct, clear message. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you have a duty to do that? Absolutely. In and what I do way? Think what sense can you actually do that? Well, I perceive that these isms are a major problem in society. And I know, also know from other contact with these beings that why they're not landing right now. They said, I, I said, why aren't you landing? They said, um, if we were to land, they said, your society is going through a very important social transition right now. If we were to land, it would adversely affect that social transition. You would not grow socially in the way that you should. So we cannot land until you make that transformation. And I know what that transformation is. It's a transformation from a materially based perception of reality to a spiritually based or spiritual psycho perception of reality. So pretty much what you're talking about in terms of technology would exactly would be uh, exactly and, yeah. and new science the new science of this coming age is going to be just that that interaction between the psychic and the physical. Well, is that so far off from Buddhist or even Hindu thought where everything is consciousness and matter uh, is a manifestation of consciousness? Yeah, I don't think it's that far off. So we just need to be Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say, no, probably Buddha. Buddha had contact with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, well, this is Lama, like, certainly, right? <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, if you, know, if, you, if, if you accept the existence of the psychic and the spiritual, then that's uh, a realm that's accessible to any conscious being, no matter where in the universe you are. So whether Buddha discovered it or an ET comes and tells you about it, it's both the same did you ever ask them why me and not why, you know, why not no, the president? No, I never did. I never did. But I get, you know, it's like I say, I have to say, I felt, when I saw that bald-headed guy, I really felt like this was possibly, what do you say, a relative, somebody I had been once, I had been that race once. So I feel oh. that I, I may have come, that this is not my home planet, etc. That's a feeling. I, I have no proof of that. I just had that feeling. Right. I mean, I had another experience with that guy, too. So, What were the other experiences? He, all of a sudden, I found him. 
I found myself standing in front of him. He was standing, had a uniform on. It was a whitish silvery uniform with uh, a few black little uh, highlights on the corners, you know, like edging or something, and a little, had a little insignia on his on his left breast, but I don't remember what it is. Um, it was sort of like a collarless one-piece suit. Um, he was about five foot six tall. Um, he was not a gray, you know, as I described, he was very different than a gray, but still, it's certainly not a earth human. And he asked me, he said, do you have any questions? And I said, uh, the first question that popped in my mind, I said, is this, is, is the earth hollow? Because I, I just happened to be thinking about that around that time. And immediately, instantly, the next thought, I was getting off a ship in this large cavern somewhere in the earth. I knew, you know, I had all this intuitive knowledge instantly about what this was. It was a, I instantly knew, no, the center of the earth is not hollow. It's, it's probably magma. But this was a hollow cavern whether natural or man-made or human-made, somewhere in the crust of the earth. It was very large. I was on a beach on the edge of this large... It was a lake large enough so I could not see the other side, and it had a sun, which I looked at, immediately, and it didn't hurt my eyes, so immediately I knew it was an artificial light. Uh, it just made to look like the sun. Uh, there was absolutely no wind. There was no waves on the water. It was very calm. And there was plants going all around the edge of the beach, and they were all very, uh, they were, um, what are you, succulents? Do you know what a succulent plant is? No. You know, more the tropic, where they, uh, tropical type plants where they're thick leaves. Right. Uh, <clears throat> they store water. And, uh, but they were every color but green. There's no green. They were like um, blue and reds and orange and yellow leaves. Very exotic looking plants, very interesting. And, uh, so that was the answer, and that was the last I remember. So this, so this guy just came to you, and, and the first things out of his mouth was, any questions? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And awesome. I, again, I, I had the distinct feeling that I had been talking to him for quite some time before that, but right. at that exact point in time, I became conscious of it. He was probably talking to my subconscious before that. Hmm. Huh. And this was the same guy. I mean, he looked the same. Same guy. Except the yeah, same guy, yeah. Wow. I'd have to say that the the import of all this and the import of what Jemmy is doing is the acknowledgement of other reality beyond the physical and the acknowledgement of that interaction happening all the time and that we should allow this to be, you know, get rid of the fear of talking about it. You know, it's it's this is a real experience. Uh, psychic experience is real. We should talk about it. We should not be afraid. No ridicule. Right. You know, open. You know, we should be more open to this. Well, and on that note, yeah, I want to thank you for going public with your stories, okay, your life, and with all of this. Um, yeah. Because well, there, when we did the Harvard thing, there was a it was sort of a bone of contention. Uh, of just how public we should go or, or how that's going to work. Yeah, well, I, I don't think they were against uh, going public. They were they didn't want it tape recorded. And uh, mm. um, I'm not quite sure why I was on the line. I don't know why, but, uh, I, I, you know, you have to honor some people's uh, feelings and that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But, again, I just I want to thank you for, for coming out and 
doing the show. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Thank you very much. Sure. Take care. Bye. And just a quick footnote at the end, um, you'll notice that there were a bunch of slapping or snapping sounds. Uh, this is something that uh, happened every now and then during the interview, and I edited it out to the best of my ability. But at the end, it became so odd and blatant um, that I was actually uh, instant messaging Jeff and saying, Jeff, what are you doing? Knock it off. Whatever you're doing, you're making too much noise. And he said, what are you talking about? And then when we talked about it later, he said, you know, he heard it too, <laughs> but it wasn't him. Um, and it was coming from his microphone uh, input so, I mean, I can I can see where things are coming from. So it's definitely coming in from from his end. Um, but he says he wasn't making any noise. He wasn't doing anything. So just another odd thing to add to the list. All right. Hey, guys and gals. It's Jeff here with a message about Mark Nesbitt's Supernatural Summit, February 19th through the 21st, 2010. This is unlike any paranormal conference you've ever been to. In fact, one of the reasons it's so innovative is that you never leave your home. You attend this online. This is a virtual conference. You can be anywhere in the world with net access and from a home PC, a laptop, right down to a cell phone, you can attend this gig. You can ask questions live to the presenters, interact with different exhibitors. Every aspect of an in-person conference is there. This is over 50 hours of presentations and interactions with paranormal investigators, authors, and exhibitors right down to your fellow attendees without the travel cost or hotel expenses. One of the best parts, after this whole thing is over, you've got four weeks to watch recordings of the lectures you may have missed during the live event. You're not going to miss anything but the hotel bills, the travel nonsense, and of course your missed work time. There's also exhibitor booths where you can shop from home for books, DVDs, and even investigation equipment. So you're not even missing the, the tables you'd normally see at a conference. Some of the presenters, some of the best out there. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Scott Crownover, Lane Crosby, Dr. Charles Emmons, Rob Conover, John Zappas, and even the dear friend of this show, Mr. Mark Nesbitt. And that's just some of the great presenters you'll be able to hear and interact with. Now, here's the deal for our listeners. You're saying, what's this cost? Well, the cost, if you mention Paratopia and register before February 15th, the cost is $50. That's $25 off the regular admission for the whole conference. Now, in addition to the discount, Mark's decided to do something even more special for our Paratopia listeners. Again, go to www.supernaturalsummit.com. Mention Paratopia when you register. You'll not only get the discount, but in addition to that, you'll be automatically entered for a drawing to win a night's investigation with Mark Nesbitt and me, Jeff Ritzman from Paratopia. So guys, head on over right now, www.supernaturalsummit.com. Get registered. Again, the date for this is the 19th of February through the 21st of February. Go check it out, www.supernaturalsummit.com. So the Jer, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So what did you think of that interview? Um I'm I like I liked it. I'm glad um Chris was brave enough to come on the show and step out of hiding. Well, not really hiding, but step out of um uh, uh, uh anonymity or obscurity or just, you know, talking about yeah. it publicly. Whatever the right phrase, turn of phrase is. Yeah. I think the uh, I think the machine thing was very interesting, you know, the inspired of uh, three men to all kind of, I don't know, come together with this uh, 
with this to make this device that I they've find all it interesting. Said, yeah, that the, the, they came together to make this device, and and that's all very supernatural sounding, and yet mm-hmm. ultimately they might not end up making it. So what was <laughs> yeah. it for? You know. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I said to you after the show, once we were, were you know, kind of cleaning up and, and uh, getting ready to sign off, that uh, I think he's, our guest tonight, I think he was like a walking example of the 3 a.m. DMT in the brain type of experience, you know, not to negate it as, uh, as all imaginary, clearly, when your daughter has a tandem sighting event of a strange light at the same time that you're having a lucid dream of sorts of a craft in the in the same spot. I mean, that's a little too much to – that makes you think a little bit about these people who say, I had this dream. Immediately, when I hear that, I switch off. I'm like, okay, it's a dream. Whatever. I had this dream <laughs> you know? I healed, so I don't know what to do anymore, you know? Yeah. <laughs> My boundaries are uh, a little opaque. Blurring all the more, yeah. Uh, so I mean, I, I mean, this this was a different kind of of discussion for me because usually I don't I don't pay a great deal of attention to those types of accounts. But nonetheless, I mean, the the, the machine, the the ins- the I don't know the how do you put it the inspired um, obsession with this machine uh, to make this work to. To, to do whatever it's going to do, I mean, uh, I thought was interesting. And I, I thought the phone call thing was really pretty wild. I guess you could easily say, well, he, he didn't look at the clock right or his clock was off or somebody's, you know, you know, so, something like that. I mean, there, you could put any plausible explanation with it you want, but uh, he seemed pretty steadfast in his notion that this is not, you know, this. Uh, I didn't make any mistake. This is exactly how it happened, well, and I've gotten that, these phone then- calls. Yeah, the ragtime music or whatever it was, the doo wop music. Time, well, the ra- it stopped. The doo wop music stopped. So right. Yeah. That's not a clue that this was the the cap <laughs> to that whole experience. You know. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, you know, and like I said, I mean, what if the machine worked and they didn't know it? <laughs> yeah. You know, what if it did do something? Um, I mean, it's almost like. Uh, I, I mean, I hate to make the analogy with a television show, but like like Lost, where the consciousness goes forth into the future or the past, and and the, the body doesn't. You know, it's one of those kind of weird, I, I don't know, or, or parallel universes, or a, a time dilation for for better, one of a better word. Mm-hmm. I mean, that 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 all was pretty damn interesting, and I have to wonder, you know, did this thing actually do something to them? In the room while it was running, not so much environmentally, but to them, to make something like this happen. It's, I thought that was really neat. I'd love to see this thing, by the way. Mm. I mean, that would be really cool. So, yeah, I find um, it interesting that he doesn't consider himself an abductee, too. You know, he has all mm-hmm. of the, you know, sort of the Reagan Lee syndrome. <laughs> I've got all of yeah. the symptoms, but I ain't diseased. Well, I mean,. I guess I guess he doesn't see. I mean, he's never had the. I guess the on a table naked. They're taking my sperm. You know that kind of. Th- I think I think that's like the stigma when you think of abductee is that sort of scenario, that public eye type of picture, and that's just it's a lot broader than that and bigger than that. Sometimes it's not even that. So um, I don't blame him for not accepting that title. I don't I don't like that title either. <laughs> But, but nonetheless, interesting guy and uh, some some 
wild stuff. I mean, well, really. What do you think of the reptilian oh, getting into bed well, with him? <laughs> I found that like really reminiscent of Graham Hancock's ayahuasca thing, where the big serpentine snake wraps herself around him and lays, you know, the mammoth head of this snake on her shoulder on his shoulder, and uh, that seemed oddly similar to that. You know, I mean, I have to wonder what it is with reptiles. What is it with reptiles at all? In the why aren't they birds? Why aren't they bird people? You know what well, I mean? I don't know. I mean, one simple answer might be the fact that we have a reptilian brain. Mm-hmm. There might be some throwback to uh, to that that piece of us that you know gets activated in a certain way during these times. You know what else I think I think about is that you know I think of I think of the mind working in in geometric shapes, and of course. A snake scale and the repetitive of you know the diamond shape scale is certainly a geometric shape, um, repetitive geometric shapes. You have to wonder if it doesn't have something to do with that. Um, well, I know, like I, I don't know if you remember this or if if I've talked about this in the show, just stop me. But one of my weird like gray basket, I don't know how to categorize this events was when I let the meditation energy sort of do its thing and it started rubbing really really fast on the back of my neck. Uh-huh. Um, on these two vertebrae, and then and then on up into my neck, <laughs> uh, up into my skull, <clears throat> slid me out onto the floor, started tapping around my head, and like heat rose up on the uh-huh. floor, and then slid me back into bed. And I looked at my arm, and my arm looked like a reptile's arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you telling me that. Yeah, and then I and then I um, you know, come to find out later that that's where where I was rubbing is basically the rub the reptilian brain, you know, is located there. So whatever this was doing was definitely stimulating that. You know? What does that mean, reptilian brain? What is that? I mean, where oh, does that come from? this is where from? I need to know more about biology. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Wikipedia says there's a, what's called a triune brain, which okay. consists of the R-complex, that would be the reptilian complex, the limbic system, and the neocortex. And it says here, the brainstem and older atavistic areas of the central nervous system control normal and voluntary behavior that the conscious mind does not, such as the cardiac and respiratory functions. These are found in all vertebrates, but are not considered to be part of the triune brain. The R-complex is named for the most advanced part of the brain higher mammals share with reptiles. The R-complex is responsible for rage and basic survival, fight-or-flight responses. Often the R-complex can override the most, the more rational function of the brain and result in unpredictable, primitive behavior in even the most sentient of creatures, humans included. A well-developed and healthy neocortex can monitor R-complex activity in sentient beings. The reptilian complex is the most ancient part of a very successful brain scheme, evolutionarily speaking. So there huh. you go. That's what we got in us. Interesting. So basically, we share, we share some things in common with reptiles. Which hmm. kind of makes sense, this whole um, reptilian alien thing to me, you know, maybe... It's a form of us. A form of us, a projection of what we were, or something. You say that, I mean, when you were reading there, you were saying that the reptilian part of the, the, the brain is responsible for rage or fight or flight. Maybe that's what brings on these type of things, or visionary experiences, is fight or flight, rage, fear, you know, those primal... And it is very primal. I mean, when you're in that kind of state, when you're in that horrified panic state, you have to wonder if that's not, um, you know, somehow geometrically responsible for the the reptile vision uh, or well, perception of that. 
you know, often the R complex can override the more rational function of the brain and result in unpredictable primitive behavior in humans. So it sounds like if you get into a fight or flight instinct situation, the R, you know, the reptilian brain takes over, you know, Hmm. that's sort of where you go to. And that's, that's freaking curious, isn't it? Yeah. We may have to have a neurologist on this show. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's that's um, pretty interesting, do. actually. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. We've got a lot to uh, cover there. I mean, would a neurologist also cover uh, sleep paralysis and old <coughs> Yeah, probably. Syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, that, well, that was a big holdover from the last show. I noticed a lot of people on the discussion board talking about sleep paralysis and the definition thereof and and how that applies to... Uh, any sort of alien experience, and uh, I agree with you. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, when you when you look at the the broader picture of everything that's going on, I think that's one of the easy, you know, go to answers for skeptics to talk about is that that whole sleep paralysis thing because parts of it sound similar. So that must be it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a silly thing to say. I can stimulate your brain to make you believe there are people in the room. Therefore, right. and since there aren't any. Does that mean people don't exist? I mean, you, you play for <laughs> right. people with aliens, and suddenly, you know, aliens don't exist. This thing doesn't exist. Right. Right. No, you just prove that you can stimulate the brain to make it seem as though there are other people, bodies in the room. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think back to that Larry King uh, life after death uh, thing that had, uh, what was his name from Survivor? The guy, the host from Survivor? He actually was standing in for Larry King that night. And, um, and I remember, I think it was Shermer was on saying that. You know, he went up to, uh, what was it, Canada somewhere. I, I, I can never remember this doctor's name um, with the God helmet. Uh, Persinger. Persinger, Dr. Persinger. Um, you know, put the helmet on him, and he had an out-of-body experience, and he had a, he had this and he had that. And he's like, you know, I've experienced these things, so I know what I'm talking about. And, you know, and as we know, uh, Stacey Horn was the one who said Dr. Persinger is reevaluating what he thinks about these experiences with the God Helmet. He's beginning to think that possibly they do represent some kind of reality or, or altered perceptions, seeing something that may be there uh, and, and brainwaves being altered by uh, these electrodes. So, well, yeah, so I felt like jumping to the screen. <laughs> Schumer can't say, oh, I've had these experiences. No. Somebody who's had yeah. those experiences is the only one qualified to say that that's the same thing. Exactly. I mean, it's right. idiotic. And you know what else is idiotic is that Shermer is on there with Deepak Chopra and, and that whole crew talking about reincarnation. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry, but what exactly are you a specialist of? I mean, why is it that skeptic, you just have the word skeptic as a title, and yeah. suddenly you're an expert on everything, really? I mean, right. UFOs to reincarnation? Are you serious? Well, I think, to be honest with you, I mean, that's probably the first or second time I've ever seen him on a program where I think he was made a complete ass of. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think in the general populace watching a show like that, they always expect to hear the skeptical view. And I think a lot of times that the public, of, of course, we know the public is not ultimately aware of every nuance of the, of the UFO experience. So when these people come on and talk, we get in a rage because, well, they're not, they don't have the whole story. And now the public is thinking that the, the skeptical angle is correct because it sounds more plausible and it sounds more, uh, 
cohesive and they can get their hands around something like that. But I think this is really one of the few times where he just, it it seemed his whole argument just completely fell apart in his lap. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was, and you watch this and you're like, oh man, you know, he's losing it. I mean, he's losing this this cohesive thought that he's trying to put across with every new guest that is coming up in support of, you know, this contention of life after death or this sort of thing, or these experiences being real, he's falling further down the ladder here on this show. I mean, it was great to watch. Well, sure. But uh, I just don't understand how it is that these people can just go on without any specialty. You know, I mean, these are broad topics to be a, a specialist in reincarnation yeah. and UFOs and psychic ability and alien abduction. Well, really? I've written what I think about skeptics and what we should do, you know, and, and, you know, I, I've said it before that I think a lot, I think a great many of them just want to be that, I don't know, they want to stand in as that figure who calls the masses to rationality. You know, they want to be the ones to, Solve the mystery and and uh, look how foolish you all are being. I mean, in some way, I see this just about from every skeptic I've ever heard talk, speak, be on a TV show, radio, whatever. It seems to be this deep-seated need to be right, to be the one who who's in the. I am thinking logically, and you all are out of your minds. You know that sort of elitist uh, type of behavior, which. I don't know. I don't know what kind of personality that is, but it, it, they all do seem to have a similar personality trait like that. And I think that you know they're always asking for. Well, why don't we get a psychological study done of these abductees? A real psychological study. Well, how about we do one on skeptics, <laughs> on why a person feels this need to go out of their way to dispel what someone else believes, thinks, or theorizes on. Just because they don't agree with it, you follow what I mean? Oh yeah, it's it yeah. just—I mean, what, what, it's, it's what confounding to, to go me. On like TV to be, or or in print or that whatever, to, to be, yeah, the the Naa guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I've, you can see, like when Phil Class was alive, you know, his whole thing was, um, well, I, you know, who knows if he was telling the truth, but he claimed he was afraid of UFO cults and things like that, and he yeah, well, this to so turn religion. <laughs> Uh, and so you could say, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I don't get the feeling out of any of these other people that that's the case. I certainly haven't heard it from them that that's yeah. why they're doing this. You know, it just seems like it's their job. <laughs> it's yeah. their hobby. It's the thing they do. Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess in defense, in defense of Shermer, can I say that on this show? I mean, that is his magazine, The Skeptical In- Inquirer. You know, I mean, that's it's his... I guess that's his business. He publishes a magazine on this stuff. But then again, who publishes a magazine? Yeah. <laughs> Just going, nah. uh <laughs> <laughs> Don't I mean, worry, you, everybody. Right. When you really think about it, it is really it's well, interesting. It's, I mean, I find that fascinating it, as a human trait. You it's know? what is at stake? Because I think about like what we do and the reason like we basically do that. I mean, we, you know, make fun of Greer and and call out uh, the people that we think are, you know, crap. I mean, we do that. Sure. We ser- I think we serve that function to the best of our ability. Uh, but we have something at stake, which is that this is a part of our lives, and so we don't want to be cast in the same light as those people. A skeptic right. 
doesn't have that. They've got no emotional right. tie to this subject. Right. So what are they doing? Right. What do they care? I don't know. So you're right. There should be a, a psychological evaluation of these skeptics. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a it's an effort to, I don't know, be the smartest one in the room or at least portray that personality of I'm above. It, it's, it, just, it just seems to me like it's at a very elitist type behavior that you've got to go out of your way to do this. So, yeah, I think there should be a study <laughs> of that kind of personality. It, it, it's it's a fact. I mean, it, and again, if you look at the whole at the whole UFO ball of wax, and skeptics are certainly a part of that. As much as I hate to say it, it's it's just another interesting wrinkle of you know persons involved in this, and the wise you know after a while just become the, so many. It's like what are we are we going to study the people? Or are we going to study the phenomena? You know, it's like what take your pick. Either either one is equally interesting to me. Well, I wonder what a Shermer would do with a guy like you or me. You know, um, I mean, here you have two experiencers who would basically agree. You know, we don't want this to turn into religion or cult or hucksterism or any of that garbage, and yet we're still saying, oh yeah, and by the way, it's real. Um, and I don't think we come across as loons. I hope not. You know, like, I think that we can hold an intelligent conversation about this stuff with them that wouldn't, you know, where, where they would have to be forced to recognize, oh yeah, uh, unless these guys are somehow compartmentally delusional. Yeah. Um, I just got to take them at their word, right? I think that he would say, and I certainly don't presume to speak for him, but, I think that he would say, well, I'm sure that the experience seemed very real to you, but, and then go on with whatever prosaic explanation he could come up with. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I think would be. It, it wouldn't be, I don't, I don't think you're liars. I don't think you're lying. I think you actually believe this, but I mean, how many times have we heard that? You know, I don't think they're lying, but, you know, and then the explanation when they end up at the, at the end of that explanation of why they're not lying, but it still comes out that they're lying. <laughs> Yeah, you know? or 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 wrong in some way, but I mean, I, I just think that there's at some point you've got to look at the person who's saying it. And if the person who's saying it is articulate enough, uh, you know, I, I got to think that you know, you, in the back of your mind, you must be thinking at some point, um, hey, I bet Jeff probably already thought of sleep paralysis. I bet Jeff probably already thought maybe it was lucid dreaming at some point. I bet he's run through the litany of stuff, and it ain't that. Hmm, right. We've got a real mystery on our hands. I don't know. I don't know that you're going to get that. Uh. Well, I mean, we have. Like, that's the thing. That's the thing yeah. that bothers me about, like, like whenever you start talking to somebody who doesn't know this stuff about your life, and they're like, well, have you ever thought that maybe it could have been dreams? And it's like, no, right. dude. I'm 36. Never thought of that. Not a day in my life. Are you fucking high? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know, I know. Well, I mean, like I said, interesting dynamic. You know, I don't know where to go with it. I don't argue with them. You know, I don't. I don't find it to be a productive, you know, occupation of time to argue with a skeptic about this stuff. I'm, I'm over that. It's kind of like I've said about UFOs or so two minutes ago. So is arguing with skeptics. It's yeah, but like, I would like to. I would like to ask Shermer or one of those guys. What it is about this that attracts them? Well, I, I, you know, Derek Bartholomew is a friend of mine, IG West. So, hey to him in this uh, thing, and and he's of course 
you know, a member of a, a an organization that's associated with James Randi and all that. And, and uh, Derek and I worked together on some of the, well, shall we say, floppy UFO cases. And, uh, <laughs> well, he's and, a new breed of skeptic who, you know, can well, tolerate a guy like you. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it, you know. I guess when we have a we have a common foe of sorts, um, I guess that 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 works. But uh, you know, I I think that what I what I get from him and what I've gotten from him before in phone conversations and emails is that I think he feels a very genuine sense that when he tackles some kind of thing like uh, a, a, a you know some fake psychic that is demonstrably fake, and here you can show why and. Uh, Derek's very methodical about laying all the evidence out for people and saying, look, I'm not saying one way or the other, but here is the data as it sits. Now, you can make up your mind from here, and it's pretty obvious how to make your mind up from some of the things that he's tackled. Uh, I think for him, he feels a genuine need to um, educate I mean, one of his big things is this uh, Jenny McCarthy uh, immunization. You know, her, her child apparently developed autism after uh, being immunized, and now she's very against uh, immunizations of some sort. And I, I don't know what all that's about. I'm, I'm not. I just caught the periphery of that. But he sees that th- there could be serious problems with children being vaccinated for routine things, and, and parents being afraid to get their children vaccinated. You know, I know that was one of the things I think he brought up one time. I may be wrong, but either way you cut it, he feels a genuine responsibility to people to educate, and 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 that I can respect. I mean, that I can I can get behind that. Um, but I don't think that is representative of most skeptics. I hate to say, I I I really don't. I think. Um, just by body language and facial expression and 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 the words of course it it seems like it's something i don't know it seems like it's something elitist and it's something that's self-serving to them rather than some i'm doing a service here you know mm-hmm. it's like what do you care if anybody believes in flying saucers so so what <laughs> how does that affect your reality it doesn't you know so what do you care leave us alone but like I say, it, it, to argue with a skeptic is, in my opinion, these days is just uh, it, it's an absolute waste of time. So why bother? Why bother? I'd rather argue with a with a, a hypnotherapist or a, you know a neurologist or somebody like that. I'd rather have a discussion with them about the what's and the why's than than a skeptic. The end. So many thanks to our guest, right? Yeah, many thanks to uh, to Chris for coming on the show and. Um... And especially, you know, I met him at the Harvard meetup and um, uh, there was a lot of people didn't really want to come forward with their experiences and he was a little hesitant, um, but he came on the show, man. And I, I think that's great. I think it's great that, that people are willing to step forward and here's a guy with a real career to put on the line, you know, not yeah. some schmuck like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and let's... Let's also acknowledge that his experiences, I think, would be considered very on the edge for a lot of people, considering you know the state that he's in when he experiences these things. I mean, I got to say, for for me, that I, while I found it interesting, I'm still much more compelled by those people who remember things outright from a 
not not a sleep state. You know, I don't. I'm not marginalizing his experiences by any stretch, but just for my own personal value, I guess you could say. You know, I tend to appreciate the uh, the, the conscious or the awake state experiences that they recall. Uh, I find those more interesting, but this was certainly a different, so a, a lot different angle for me, at least, and I found it interesting. So, why? Do you find it why? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that uh, I think the level of suggestibility in in a sleep state or, or a dream state is is more, and and just because of my own experiences that, and I have had some that have been dream in a dream state where I've. I, and I think you've talked about this before, where you felt that uh, like something doesn't belong in the dream. It's like you're having a dream, and then all of a sudden, this this walks in. We talked about this way back. What episode two? I had that really strange dream. Mm-hmm. Y- you have to wonder: is something standing beside your bed while you're having this dream and putting these things into your mind? You know, again, the experience with his daughter seeing the light by the tree, his experience in the the lucid dream state of seeing this craft by the tree, I find that significant. I find that 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 correlation between the two seems to support his lucid dream experience. But I would still find his daughter's experience more interesting to me. That's that's just personal preference. It's just mm-hmm. yeah, I think the suggestibility. You know the 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 interpretation of the mind uh, and 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 how those how those scenes play out in that kind of state. I find more interesting if you're in an awake state and you see something like that and what happens then. And regardless of the fact that these beings seem to be able to to affect your perception in pretty large ways, um, you know, I, I I don't know. I just find them I find them more compelling to me. But this was still very interesting. Well, I found it interesting in that I, I guess when he started talking about the dream stuff, I expected, like where my prejudice goes to is toward some of my friends who cannot differentiate between dream and not dream. So if they have an alien-esque dream, they'll just assume they won't differentiate. Oh yeah, I saw aliens or, oh yeah, there are several races. And it's like, you know, I've heard this before. It's like, Oh really? Well, what was your experience? And they'll relate a dream, and I'm like, well, okay, that's that's a dream. That's a dream, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've all had that. I mean, I don't include right. those, um, but this was not that to me. And and like you said, the the sort of proof of it, or whatever the external reality of it, came with his daughter sighting, and also the fact that you know he ultimately ends up building this machine with two other people who right yeah in this shared dream experience apparently uh yeah so and, and then also of course i hearken back to my own uh having just been healed recently in a dream you know having right something seemingly walk into the dream now whether someone was standing by my bed or whatever i mean to me is irrelevant because i i, I i've got to assume that there's that even if it's in the dream, there's an external reality. In other words, whatever's going, whatever that thing is in the dream, the person, the being, isn't me, isn't a projection of my unconscious mind. Whether right. he's standing there or, or in you know, standing with the Pulajarans. <laughs> well, oh <laughs> Jesus! Off uh, sorry somewhere. about that. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that, listeners. Um, no, I mean, don't you liken it? I mean, for me, I liken it kind of to being asleep in the fart chair in my living room. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there it is. And, uh, and you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a dream the other night. 
where I was at my mom's house and she had the TV on and I don't know, some random infomercial was on TV. And, and in my dream, that infomercial was playing out as if we were sitting in an audience watching this, you know, but it was playing on TV. It's kind of like that, you know, it's like that feedback again, it's, 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 it's coming out of the TV, it's running through your head and, you know, and, and you're dreaming about it at the same time. That's kind of how I, I think about some of these experiences that are too far to dismiss as dreams, but yet not quite real enough to call an alien experience per se, mm-hmm. uh, in the classic sense of, oh, I'm awake. I must be awake. Is that what you mean? I'm awake. <laughs> uh, you know, that's what I'm talking about. So, you know, I, I wonder about that kind of stuff. It certainly, certainly makes you think. Well, I feel fortunate, and I, I think I said this in my, my book, too. I feel like like um, I'm fortunate in that I've had waking up and, and hallucinating that my mom was coming in to say goodbye while she went to work. So I've had that, that wake, waking hallucination. I've had a lot of lucid dreams. I've had regular dreams. I remember my dreams really well, normally, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like I've had the, and now, of course, doing shrooms, for this show, oh, you know, add that yeah. to the mix. I mean, I feel like I've had a good number of uh, altered states of consciousness, whether awake or asleep, sure. that I feel like I'm qualified to be able to differentiate. Oh, yeah. You know, in a, in a way that a lot of people aren't. Um, and, I, and I would think that a lot of people, if they haven't had lucid dreams and were to have one, would believe that they were having an out-of-body experience or that they were having some sort of real thing uh, and they'd be wrong. Right. I don't get that sense listening to him. I get no. the sense that he really is going through this hyper-real stuff. Yeah, yeah, in some way, yeah. So that's my professional judgment. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's right. I, I'm the Michael Shermer of ufology. <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> 